thrilled to have in studio with me Dr. Thomas Cranawitter, a great scholar, thinker, author, speaker. It's great to have you here, Tom. Hey, thanks to Kim for having me here. I appreciate it. Well, and you are an entrepreneur. You have uh, launched a number of businesses. And let's talk about this uh, Upward BA, uh, Upward Business Academy, uh, which is upwardba.com. Tell me about that. Well, th- this started from a, a, a really simple idea. So I, I tend to run around with a number of economists, uh, PhD economist <laughs> types. I, I co-teach with them and friends with them. And, and, and I always kind of joke about them. I, I say, man, you guys really suck. And, 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 and I'm joking. They're very smart guys. But the reason I tell them they suck is because they tend to skip over the most fundamental things, the very first things. They, they want to get to their fancy econometric equations that they think predict all sorts of things. And what they skip over are really foundational ideas such as wealth, what wealth is. And it turns out that wealth First of all, wealth is it's, it's different than money. Uh, money is just a currency. Money can be printed. It can be destroyed. It's not the same as wealth. Wealth is anything that other people value. If you have something that other people want, that other people are willing to trade for, you're wealthy. If you have nothing, and, and, and I want to be clear here, right? I'm not talking about I'm not talking about say spiritual wealth or the I'm talking about economic wealth, financial wealth. Things that people are willing to trade mm-hmm. for. And wealth has to be created. Now, for an entrepreneur like you or me, that seems really obvious. Of course it has to be created. For a big chunk of the human population around the earth today, that is news. They don't know that. Many people assume that wealth just exists out there somewhere. They're not quite sure where it is or where it came from. They really don't care. What they focus on is how it gets divided or distributed. So you'll, you'll hear these statistics about how some tiny percent of the population controls some large percent of the wealth, and, and their conclusion usually is that is a great injustice. Therefore, we need government programs and policies that take wealth away from those who have much and distribute it to those who have very little. And the whole premise for that outlook on the world is a premise that wealth simply exists, and the only question is, how does it get divided? Well, and the other and, thing is that, that wealth is just a certain pie. Yes. That, and it's a fixed amount. It's a fixed amount. Yes. And, and therefore, if some people have much of that fixed pie, there's very little of the pie left for everyone else, right? So, so therefore... Then you get into uh, arguments of confiscation of property and high taxation and things like that. But it's also interesting to look at it from a a psychological point of view or a spiritual point of view. It turns out to be a a really ugly way of living. It it, it turns out to be an angry way of living, right? It it fuels envy. It fuels dissatisfaction. and, And I think... I think when I look around at the American culture today, I see people, especially young people, but, but older people too, who, who are fueled by this envy and this anger at those who have been successful. And part of the reason we created Upward Business Academy was to go into businesses in particular and talk to employees about this simple idea that wealth 
it does not just exist out there in the world, and it's not a fixed amount. It can be created. And that basic idea of wealth creation turns out to be one of the most hopeful, inspirational ideas ever. The idea that wealth can be created is not only good for wealthy people, more importantly, it's good for poor people. Because what it means is if you're born into the world in a condition of poverty, you're born into a poor family, you're born into a a part of the world where there's much poverty, it does not have to stay that way. You don't have to stay poor your entire life. If wealth can be created, you can create wealth. I can create wealth. Anyone can create wealth. And then and then we, we the training we offer through Upward Business Academy keeps pulling on that string. So we start with this idea wealth wealth can be created. That that raises a question, well how how, how do we create wealth? And it turns out the answer is absolutely beautiful. The answer is Stop thinking about yourself so much, just for a moment. Look around you, look at other people and ask the question, what do they value? What do they want? What do they need? What do they appreciate? And how can you help create that? Deliver it, right? How can you help get to other people what other people really want? As soon as you do that, you are creating wealth for yourself by producing something other people value. Uh, I, 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 I do this drill. I have three children, and I do this drill with my kids. We'll, we'll pick, say, a, a highly paid professional athlete. You know, I, I don't know, think of someone, Le- LeBron James, right? He's a basketball player. It makes many millions of dollars. And we'll, if he comes on the TV, I'll, st- I'll pause it, and I'll look at my kids. I'll say, tell me, why does he make millions of dollars? And they used to say, because he's a really good basketball player. And I would correct them and say, no, 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 no. He gets paid millions of dollars because many people value watching basketball. They really enjoy it. They appreciate it. And he happens to be good at that. So they're willing to pay tickets and buy advertising and all that. The moment people have no interest at all in basketball, you know, imagine, just imagine tomorrow. We woke up in a world where nobody cared about basketball. No one wanted to watch it. LeBron James would be just as talented tomorrow as he is today, but he would be worth zero for his basketball skills because nobody would want to buy a ticket or, or watch a game. So, so the source of wealth, the source of value is always in the eyes of others, trying to figure out what other people want and need. One of the great disservices that our colleges and universities do today, if you walk onto any campus there will be banners and flyers and all kinds of propaganda telling students to follow their passion. Mm-hmm. When I talk to students, I say, Just don't, don't go follow your passion because your passion might be for something really silly and ridiculous. It might have to be a hobby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I say, when you think about your future, rather than following your passion, why don't you focus on what other people want, what other people need, and then learn how to produce that, learn how to deliver it then you're setting yourself up for a very successful life where you're going to make wealth, you're going to create wealth for yourself by providing what other people want and value. And all of this, all of this is an attempt to try to shift attitudes very slightly from the, think of, think of the ordinary American today who looks at the world through a sense of entitlement. They look at it around the world and they think, I'm entitled to a better house and a nicer car and more money and things that other people have. And what I want to do is shift that just very slightly, two or three degrees, 
to a view of looking at the world saying, how can I become more valuable so that I can create more wealth? Employees who look at the world, look at their job, look at their colleagues with a view of asking themselves, how can I become more valuable? Those are not the kind of employees who skip work to go protest down at the state capitol demanding raises in the minimum wage, for example, right? Instead, those are the kinds of employees who figure out how can they get more training? Can they learn a new skill? Can they solve a problem uh, at, at the workplace? Can they make things more efficient? What can they do to become more valuable to the people around them? That's the key to success. And all of that flows from this really simple core idea that wealth can be created. And so, well, you know, we're going to go to break. I like more information. I imagine there's business owners out there that are very interested in Upward Business Academy. So Dr. Tom Cranawitter, we'll go to break. We'll come back and learn a bit more about that. So this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks. Uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson. Dissecting issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree. We need to have some conversations. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. And I am the AmeriChicks on Facebook and Twitter as well. Offering you a conservatarian perspective. Thrilled to have in studio with me Dr. Thomas Cranawitter. You know him as scholar, author, speaker, teacher, inspirational guy all the way around. Great to have you here. And an occasional guest on the Americhicks. Uh, most definitely. You right. can't forget that. But uh, you're an entrepreneur. Yeah. And that is something that is, I would submit, inherently American. <laughs> and uh, so you have several different companies. This one that we've been chatting about, this Upward Business Academy, and that is UpwardBA.com. It's talking about productivity and, and wealth. We were talking yeah. about that in the last uh, segment. So let's let's expound on that a bit. Yeah. And, and also I wanted to mention if, if people go to the website, UpwardBA.com, uh, there's a little tab that says Business Basics. And if you scroll down, we've produced some short professional training movies. When I say short, they're two and a half to three minutes Perfect. each. They're very short. Um, and what they do is they present these basic kind of ideas that we're talking about, what, 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 what poverty is, what wealth is, how wealth is created, uh, with a real emphasis on how businesses are particularly well-designed machines and engines to create wealth. And anybody who's in a job should feel really fortunate that they're part of an organization whose whole purpose is to, is to create wealth. And you know, one of the ways I came to thinking about these things and studying these things. I'm a, I'm a student of human history and human nature. And I spent years collecting data, as a wonky researcher does, on the total global amount of wealth over thousands of years. And it turns out the total global amount of wealth for thousands of years on planet Earth was very little. If you if you if you if you graph this out, think of a, a graph line uh, spanning centuries and actually millennia, and the line is flat and very low. There was very little wealth in the world, and most of it was controlled by a handful of thugs. Uh, some some of them called themselves pharaoh, others called themselves Caesar or king or emperor, writer, some kind of tyrant, and in fact for uh, re recorded human history, 
that is history for which we actually have written records, stretches back about 5,000 years. And throughout most of that 5,000-year period of recorded human history, the main way for a group of people, whether it was a nation, a tribe, a clan, a city, the main way to increase its wealth was by a way of conquest, to go wage war on some neighboring tribe or and clan. And take their stuff. And take their stuff, right? And so it's in that sense, it, the total amount of wealth really was a, a kind of fixed pie. There, there, were, there was only a limited amount of, of precious metals and gems and right jewelry and that kind of stuff. And it would get looted and raided and stolen from one group to another to another. And, and, and there was not much wealth being created. And that, that line of the total global amount of wealth is, is low and flat until you get to the middle part of the 1700s. The, that is the 18th century, right around the time of the American Revolution. Hmm. This really curious thing happens to the graph. It shoots straight up. It is the most remarkable thing, and, and I, so there I am as a social scientist. I'm collecting data, and I'm, I'm looking at these numbers, and I think, wow, what in the world just happened there? Did, did human nature all of a sudden change because, because people became so much more creative, so much more productive? And the answer is no. They, they, human nature didn't change. Human beings in the middle part of the 1700s, they were the same as human beings had been a century earlier and and a thousand years earlier. What changed were the incentives around them, the laws around them. For the first time in history, at least in some parts of the world, in the Western world, some people started to adopt laws that protected private property rather than confiscating private property. And what that meant for the first time ever was even if you're poor at the moment, anything you create or produce in the future is yours to keep. And that fueled the greatest burst of entrepreneurial energy, of invention and innovation. It's why, for example, the Industrial Revolution could not happen until the 19th century because it couldn't happen until property rights were protected. That's why there was no industrial revolution in, you know, 500 BC because there was no protection for private property. When I look at most of human history, I I make an argument that most human beings lived in, uh, they they lived in miserable poverty. Uh, Lifespans were short. Life was pretty ugly for most of through tough through most of human history, and most people lived under what I call a slave incentive. That was th- th- think of the incentive of a slave. If a slave is working in the field and there's a master with a you know a chain or a whip, saying commanding the slave, you will do a certain amount of work or you'll be punished. Well, how much work is the slave going to do? We know precisely how much. The slave will do exactly the amount they're commanded to do in order to avoid the punishment, but they're not going to do any more. Why would they do any more? Why would they produce any more? They don't get to keep anything. Everything they produce gets taken from them. So the slave incentive is an incentive to produce the bare minimum needed to avoid some kind of punishment or negative consequence. And that's how people lived for for nearly 5,000 years. Once once we establish laws that start protecting private property, that then creates a freedom incentive. That is the incentive to keep whatever you produce. Now it makes sense 
after property rights are created to say, say, for example, invent a new tool that makes your work more efficient, that you can actually do things faster than you used to be able to do because the more you produce, the more you can sell and you get to keep all of that. Or you can start a company where you would uh, take that tool and sell that to others so that their life could be more productive. Abs- absolutely. And, and, and that's why property rights is, is at the core of this, this, what I'm calling the freedom incentive, which really is, it's, it's innovation, it's inventiveness, it's entrepreneurial creativity of people looking around, figuring out what do other people want, what do they need, and how can I provide it best? And, and, it, and it also leads to this second phenomenon, which is just absolutely beautiful. As soon as, say, you, Kim Munson, you decide to use your freedom, you know that you're going to be able to keep whatever you produce, and you start, you start being productive. You start delivering something that other people value. I'm watching that, and I might get an idea of, I think I can do it better. Maybe I think I can deliver a better product at a lower price. What freedom, what follows from freedom is not only innovation and invention, but also competition. Mm-hmm. People start to compete. And competition is, uh, well, let me say this, excellence is inseparable from competition. Competition is how you get excellence, right? Today in the United States, we live in such a, a contradictory environment because on the one hand, uh, we Americans will talk about how, how bad competition is in the business world, and yet... Americans are wild for their sports. They love their sports, right? And what's the core lesson in sports? Why I always point out every time there's a, some kind of big, you know, like a Super Bowl or a World Series, a big national championship, I always point out why was the winner as good as they were? Because all the other teams were almost that good, uh-huh. right? They, they had to, that winning team had to reach this level of excellence to beat everyone else because they're competing against them. And, and that's what happens when you have competition. You get higher and higher levels of excellence, and everybody wins. Well, now, Tom, you had talked about in the old days, the way that one would create wealth, they would go over and they would take somebody's stuff. Yeah. But now what you're talking about is using your mind and competing and and trying to come up with something that somebody else will willingly give you their wealth because they say, that's going to make my life better. And it seems like that's, uh, duh, but, I mean, this was really a big idea. A huge idea. You know, I, I often use my iPhone as an example. Um, I use it because Steve Jobs, who founded Apple, he's no longer with us, but he's a very recognizable name and face from the business world. And so I'll hold up my iPhone and I will say sort of laughingly, you know, a few years ago, I, I made an exchange with Steve Jobs. We traded. I gave him a few hundred dollars <laughs> and I also had to sign a, you know, a, a lifetime contract <laughs> with AT&T or something like that in exchange for this phone. And I'll say, so, so what does Steve Jobs get out of that trade? A few hundred dollars of mine. That's nothing to sneeze at. And it's also just a few hundred dollars. I mean... Mm-hmm. That's that's one really fancy dinner, you know, if you mm-hmm. go to an expensive restaurant. But what did I get from Steve Jobs? And the answer is a big chunk of his life. In fact, I'm confident holding this phone. I got more of Steve Jobs' life than his own wife did. And I say that because Steve Jobs got up every day and asked, how can I provide value to Tom Cranwitter 
and millions of other people. What can I do that they need? How can I make my technology, my machine more useful to them? And he thought about that virtually every waking moment of his life. That's what I got in that little trade. So even though Apple is this gigantic business, right, that's, that has set records for corporate profits, in a way, I got way more value from Apple than Apple got from me. And that's what happens when people are productive. Some start to create things that others find valuable. And then those others, unless they want to resort to stealing or begging, they need to be productive so that they have something with which to trade. And and that is the source of how people improve their lives. And it all stems from the simple idea that wealth is created and people create wealth when they are secure in their private property, in their individual freedom. So creating wealth isn't really greed. Creating wealth is um, creating a product that people will willingly trade their money for. And if you do something well, if you get, get a product that people really want, you're going to become wealthy because you've created so much value for others. Yeah, yeah. I, I sort of push back. There's a famous line from Adam Smith, the, the economist, and I'm not one to... to quibble with Adam Smith much, but I do quibble with him here. The, 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 his famous line uh, from the, his book, The Wealth of Nations, is that uh, it's, it's not from altruism that the, uh, the butcher, the baker, the brewer, right, provides our dinner. It's from their self-interest. Now, he's, Adam Smith is right about that, right? The, the, the brewer takes all that time to brew tasty beer for us to drink, and, and, and the, the baker takes all that time to bake tasty bread for us to eat, not because they're, they love us, but because of their own self-interest. That's true. However, Adam Smith did not go on to emphasize, I mean, imagine if the, if, if the baker made really bad tasting bread that no one wanted. What would happen? What, would the baker be able to satisfy his own self-interest if he was making bad bread that no one purchased? And the answer is, well, no. He wouldn't be able to satisfy his own self-interest. So even though he's pursuing his own self-interest, what does he have to focus on? He has to focus on other people. What kind of bread do other people want? What do they like? Every, every successful entrepreneur thinks very little about himself or herself. They focus almost exclusively on other people. What do other people want and what do other people need? In that sense, the very concept of business is, it's so far from being immoral, it's one of the most beautifully moral ideas ever conceived by, by the human mind. Because what it does is it unites our own self-interest with the interests of others. We are self-interested beings, human beings are self-interested beings, and business says, Okay, stop being so narcissistic, stop thinking about yourself all the time, and pay attention to the people around you, and how can you serve them better? What is it that they want? That's a gorgeous idea. That's the opposite of, this, of, of the kind of narcissism that we see running rampant in American culture today. Well, and you are teaching this at Upward Business Academy. That is upwardba.com. Let's go to break. When we come back, let's talk about the culture in America today, what you're seeing. So this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks talking with Tom Cranwitter. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left, agree or disagree. 
Let's have a conversation and offering you a conservatarian perspective. Check out my website, americhicks.com. This conversation with Dr. Thomas Cranawitter regarding Upward Business Academy, that's upwardba.com, is really fascinating. It, it's changing the, the kind of the thought process just a little bit, a little bit of the, uh, you know, what's going on in America today. And you had talked about, Tom, in, in the first segment that we chatted it regarding thugs mm-hmm. that took stuff from other people. They came in, rode in on their horses and had their weapons and they took stuff. That, we, that, that, that's my, my nickname for tyrants. Yeah. yeah well, they're, they're thugs. Well, you know what? I think we have some thugs in America today. Yeah. And that is, is uh, there are those that have figured out the way to take people's stuff is through taxation and rules and regulations. Uh, and so do, how can we fight back against that? I, we've talked a lot about freedom. Is freedom yeah. possible yeah. now? Well, so you're, you're right. There are people who have, in fact, let me draw upon here a, a very important distinction that was made first by a colleague of mine at Hillsdale College, Bert Folsom. Um, and for those of you who are not familiar with the work of Bert Folsom. I highly recommend you go look him up on uh, Amazon.com. Uh, Bert is a historian, and in particular, he's a, he's, he focuses on economic history. This is a guy, for example, who knows the entire history of the United States tax code, like the back of his hand. It's ridiculous how much he knows. But he made a distinction uh, in his book, The Myth of the Robber Barons, between a market entrepreneur versus a political entrepreneur. And his point is a market entrepreneur just goes out there into a, you know the, the free market and competes and invents and innovates. And wh- while other people are doing the exact, they too are inventing and innovating, right? And there's competition. And to be successful there, you have to be very entrepreneurial in the market by making people happy, producing things that other people want, right? Uh, offering things at lower prices than your competitors. A political entrepreneur is someone who looks at the structure of government and all that power and figures out how to use that power to benefit himself or to benefit his friends. Uh, So think of, you know, getting elected into office and then using the power of government to tax some people in order to give a subsidy to to your friend in business over here or a special contract or or, or things Mm -hmm. like that. And it's called many times economic development. Yes, it, yes, 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 it, yes, yeah. it is. In fact, um, I, I've done I've done a fair amount of work with some political figures from Africa, and in Africa, there's an entire social and economic science uh, a, a term of that science they call the developmental state. What 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 they mean by the developmental state <laughs> is nations that basically go beg other nations for free stuff. Send us send us free stuff. Um, and and so how do these political entrepreneurs, how are they able to do what they do? And the answer is they get a lot of electoral support. There are a lot of Americans who agree with them that they have some rightful claim to what belongs to others. And and I have seen this. So I first, exper- I first came across this idea of entitlement by studying American political history. Uh, you get to people like FDR and the New Deal where he, he, he had an entire platform, what he called an economic bill of rights, mm-hmm. that all Americans have a right to a job and a house and an education. And, Sounds like and the New Green Deal. The New Green <laughs> Deal, you know, it, it's not very new, it turns out. This was, this was happening back in the 1930s. And, and then what I realized is that really, has, those 
ideas of entitlement have come home to roost, and business owners now are confronting those bad ideas, those bad attitudes in their own employees. So many industries, for example, suffer terribly high rates of turnover uh, because because so many employees don't actually value the job that right. they, that they have, and most business owners never take the time to sit down and actually crunch the numbers and figure out what turnover costs them. I mean, turnover turns out to be really expensive. There's not only direct costs of turnover, right? When, so when an employee leaves or, or if you have to fire an employee, mm-hmm. first of all, you have to go, you have to go advertise for the new position. You got to find someone, pay someone to sit and look through all the applications, do the interview, you know, hire the new person, do the training. And then there's all kinds of indirect costs associated with that. Uh, when you have high rates of turnover, the quality of service you provide goes down, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have constantly new people in your business who don't, they're not able to take care of your customers very well. It damages the employee culture in all kinds of bad ways. And and so I started going out into businesses offering training for employees, uh, explaining to them, really trying to inspire them to improve their own life by becoming more valuable. And what I'm really getting at, at the core of all this, is to try to push back against this attitude of entitlement, this this attitude that that I deserve something that I haven't actually earned, that I haven't actually created mm-hmm. for myself. And, and it's sort of interesting to look at this um, in the big context of freedom in the United States. Culturally, I, I would argue we have a culture of entitlement today, and it's strikingly different than the culture that launched the American Revolution. As a scholar, uh, I'm a student of political philosophy. So uh, for many years, I've been enamored with the great books of the great minds, Mm -hmm. you know, reading the Greeks and the Romans and and especially Enlightenment-era thinkers like John Locke and Adam Smith and Montesquieu. And, and of course, the founders, they mention those Mm -hmm. writers often. And I used to think that those books and those ideas were the key to understanding the American Revolution. And and I've really changed my mind in recent years on that. I'm still happy. I'm happy that John Locke was writing his books and Adam Smith was. And and, and, and it's it's a great thing to study those books. And there's something else that's even bigger in explaining the American Revolution. When you think what was happening for 150 years in North America prior to the American Revolution. Now, those people were English, right? They were English colonists. Every one, uh, what became the original 13 states, every one of them were English colonies prior mm-hmm. to uh, the, the Revolution. They were part of the British Empire. And they all started with a charter from the king. The king would grant a charter, which is basically permission. It's a permission slip to go sail across the ocean and go set up a little colony if you survive the trip. And that original charter was the only connection between the colonists living in North America and the government, the English government in England. Uh, Those people, you know, we we tend to forget what life was like for the early colonists. It was brutal. It was miserable. Uh, Many of those early colonies a half or more of the people would die within the first year. They froze to death. They, do, they, they starved to death. They, they died from disease. I mean, 
it was horrific. Well, the, uh, with the Mayflower, if I remember right, the the ship captain stayed for a bit because he thought, I don't know if I can leave these people here. The, the guys were on shore. The women would go back and be on the boat, yeah. and they would put their bodies over the children to keep them warm. And many of the women died. Died. Yeah. I mean, it was astonishing. Yeah, they froze to death. It, it, it was horrific. So, so what you see there is those early colonists, those were people living in a state of complete dire poverty. There's, there's no other way to describe it. Total poverty where huge chunks of them are dying from starvation and, and, and freezing to death. And then they start to work productively. They start to create. They build things, right? They grow things. They built that? They, they <laughs> built those, those businesses and those homes. And over the course of the next 150 years, they become really the most productive, creative group of people on the planet of the earth. And here's what's really interesting. Those people had never known a tax except those that they imposed on themselves at the most local level. There's only taxes they ever knew. In the 1760s, England gets into a global world war, the English Empire versus the French Empire. We, we call it here the French-Indian War. Over there, they call it the Seven Years' War. But the point is, it was, it was global. They had naval fights and army fights all over, all over the earth. The English Empire emerged victorious and broke. Um, and so doing what governments typically do, they start looking around who, from, from whom can we take money? Who can we tax? And they see those colonies in North America, really productive, really creative. And they think, let's start taxing them to fill the coffers for the English government. And that's where the, the pushback starts, right? Those colonists say, whoa, 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 you're not taxing us without representation, right? No taxation without representation. And that will lead to the revolution. But my point is, culturally, those were a people who were used to living by the sweat of their own brow. They built their own homes. They grew their own food. They ran their own businesses. They made their own choices. They carved out a life for themselves. So when a John Locke comes along, as an example, and offers a theoretical justification for private property and individual natural rights. Those revolutionaries in North America, it was sort of common sense for them. They're like, yeah, of course we have a natural right to our own property. It wasn't even controversial. Today, culturally, Americans are very different in, in today than they were back in 1776. There are large numbers, huge swaths of the American population who genuinely believe that they are entitled to other people's things, to the property, to the wealth that, that other people have earned and created. And, and, and they couch all of this in terms of their rights. It's, it's what some people call socialism, right? It is using the power of government to take from other people, but it's not actually creating new wealth. And, you know, as, as Margaret Thatcher famously said, uh, socialism is, works great, except for one little problem. At the, at the end, you run out of other people's money, right? And, and so that's really where we are culturally today. Are we a culture of entitlement and socialism and, and theft, or are we a culture of freedom and creativity and entrepreneurial production? So if you want more information, be sure and check out UpwardBA.com. That's UpwardBA.com. Dr. Tom Cranwinter, thank you so much.